Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So we've been walking through a study on the book of Job, asking, where is God in my suffering? And this week is our sixth episode. If you've been following along or are just getting started, make sure you check out the companion study available on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. Now this episode is going to be a big one. We've finally arrived at the moment we've all been waiting for, the moment when God speaks from the whirlwind. Now here's the thing about this speech. We thought this whole time we were searching for answers. Yet now that we're finally here, what we discover is that God is going to question us. So this is an episode for anyone who's been surprised by their encounter with God and who realized that when they face the whirlwind, the real question becomes not, where is God in my suffering? But instead, the real question becomes, who in my suffering is God inviting me to be? journeying with us through the past few episodes, it's very clear that one of Job's biggest accusations is that God has failed his own justice. If Job is innocent, and if Job did not deserve to suffer, then God is no longer good, and creation itself, which Job used to rely upon, can no longer be trusted. Yet this episode, I want to start by asking, where do we get our sense of justice from? Have you ever pondered that question? Who teaches us right and wrong? It's worth returning here to a point I mentioned in our first episode on Job. Suffering is one of the primary reasons why people turn away from God and the faith. They just can't understand how a God who claims to be good could allow so much wickedness and injustice to take place in the world. And worse, they can't understand how the church, which claims to worship this God, could so frequently contribute to the horrifying injustices we see happen all the time. It's just too much to hold. So the sufferer, after asking their question, where is God in my suffering, will often feel forced by this lack of answer to simply walk away from God. Yet if we walk away from God, how do we answer where our sense of justice comes from? Is it simply innate within us? Intellectuals will often answer assuredly here. It's your biology that you feel attuned to the needs of others. If you actually pay attention to where an atheist will take you, it isn't that justice doesn't really exist. Instead, justice is simply another happy accident in the long evolutionary stream of Homo sapiens realizing that without caring for the needs of others, they would never be protected themselves in return. Yet something doesn't seem right here to me. If all justice is merely for our own self-preservation, why do we feel it so deeply in our bones? Just this past summer in the year 2020, one of the largest civil rights movements has exploded across the United States in protests and riots on the streets, all because of a video released of George Floyd slowly being suffocated by the police while saying, I can't breathe. Why is it that we can't stand that video? There's nothing inherently in me that needs to be self-preserved when I watch it. Yet that video stirs me. It touches on something deep within me. Upon seeing that video, I can't help but long in this almost inner guttural 
heart-wrenching cry to demand justice. Something in us tells us that that justice should be demanded. Something in us tells us that injustice needs to be held to accounts, that we cannot accept a world without it. This is precisely the pain of the whirlwind. We can't accept what God has allowed to happen to us, yet we can't make sense of a world without God and without justice in it. This has to do with more than mere happenstance and casual references to our self-preserving instincts formed over millions of years. Accidental biology just doesn't make sense of our pain. Creation is in contest with God. Yet what Job is interestingly going to tell us is that we will need creation and God together if we were ever to reconcile the justice we so deeply long for. There's this fascinating treasure of a novel I recently discovered called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It wrestles with the predicament of how alone we are without God in a world of injustice. So written by Annie Dillard, it would go on to actually win the Pulitzer Prize in 1975. And in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Dillard is going to draw on journals she'd been keeping for several years as she lived by the Blue Mountain Range of Virginia. Dillard was a literature student who wrote poetry, was deeply influenced by Henry Thoreau, and she thought that the best way to answer these deep existential questions she was wrestling with was actually to retreat to nature in order to reflect deeply on life. However, as Dillard sat alone, Day after day by Tinker Creek, hoping to ponder nature's beauty, purpose, and design, she slowly grew horrified by what she was encountering. So this is one of her reflections, written after she witnessed a robin whose wing had been caught slowly die. This is Dillard writing. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow, but I seemed to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not buoying me up, but dragging me down. Look, the cocky robin may die in the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, and the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, or either of us about the robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I might have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. I think Dillard sees something here that is the crisis of Job. It's the crisis of anyone who suffers. You may be tempted to escape from God, but without God, your cries for justice go unheard. You're left with the coldness and cruelty of nature. Dillard is going to continue later on in the book. This is her writing again. Either this world, my mother, is a monster, or I am a freak. Consider the former, the world is a monster. There is not a people in this world who behaves as badly as praying mantises, slowly stalking then devouring their prey. But wait, you say, there's no right or wrong in nature. Right or wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures in an amoral world, a monstrous world running on chance and death, careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere, somehow produced wonderful us. I crawled out of a sea of amino acids, and now I must whirl around and shake my fist at that sea and cry, shame! We little blobs of soft tissue crawling around on this planet's skin are right, 
and the whole universe is wrong. Dillard's really hitting on something here. We are moral creatures in an amoral world. Creation itself has gone wrong, and we, with all of our fists shaking, cannot make it right. Whether our suffering was a deliberate cause or a freak accident, we look around and see far worse things happening all the time, every day. And all of our humanity is left shaking at our birth, just like Job, crying out, Shame! We are alone in a world that does not care for us. This is the last quote I'll read from Dillard, where she looks now at the alternative. And she's going to reference this terrifying scene she saw of a frog slowly decayed being eaten by water bugs. Here's how she ends her reflections. Or consider the alternative. Creation itself is fine, and it is only our human feeling that is freakishly amiss. The frog that the giant water bug sucked had, presumably, a rush of pure feeling for about a second before its brain turned to broth. I, however, have been sapped by various strong feelings about the incident almost daily for years. All right, then. It is our emotion and our values that are amiss. We are freaks. The world is fine. Let us all go have lobotomies to restore us to a natural state. We can leave the library, then, go back to the creek lobotomized, and live on its banks as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. End quote. This is our paralysis. This is why we've kept going in this study of Job. Earlier in Job 3, Job had cried out with a devastating lament that in his suffering, it was like creation had become cursed, unraveling around him. Secular culture, in its disenchantment, has tried to avoid God when it comes to the questions of suffering. It will point to science or the arts or to social justice as the guides or purpose to our lives. But when suffering intrudes, Annie Dillard notes that we're left with a creation that does not care about us. To be alone in such a world unraveled seems like the most honest response we might have is to simply get a lobotomy for our pain. But as Annie Dillard plainly states on reviewing the choices, you first. This is one of the central arguments I've been trying to weave through this study of the book of Job. It's an argument that I truly believe the only hope we have in suffering is to seek an encounter with God. Secular culture and the natural world of Tinker Creek offer no assurances of justice. And while I deeply support calls for social reform and protests on the street, they will not be able to protect us from the reality of our pain. Suffering continues and will continue to upend our world. We attempt to run from God because of it, but Job offers us a different way. For all his pain, and even all his fear about what such an encounter might contain, Job can see his only hope is to demand that God appear. He clings to this idea, cries out for it. Job will return to it over and over again. Pietistic answers and airtight arguments from the theology of friends will not do. However, to simply return alone to Tinker Creek will not take away Job's pain. Yet imagine if Annie Dillard, in her writing, could demand, before she moved on, that God needed to appear an answer for the injustices she saw. This is precisely the daring of what Job asks for, and incredibly where we're going to turn in this episode, is that God actually appears to speak. Here's what the book of Job says. 
This is Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. If the Bible didn't say it, I would assume it couldn't be true. Why does God appear to answer the demands of Job? Is it pity? Perhaps, for we've been told God was involved in the horrible wager that would lead us to this point. Yet, if it was just pity, then I think Job would have been let in on what had happened before. But he isn't. God remains silent about the previous wager. So if not pity, is it to rebuke Job that God appears? It's possible. Sometimes stern words are needed to jolt us out of our pain. Yet if I were to place Job in the canon of scripture, my greater hunch is that I think it was mercy that causes God to appear. Mercy and grace. God is beholden to no woman or man. He does not have to appear at all for creation to be sustained or even for him to continue to worthily demand Job's and our faith. But God does appear. To me, this deeply matters in the book of Job. It is an act of mercy and grace. Perhaps this appearance is not when we wanted it. Perhaps it's not even with the words we expected God to say. Yet God appears all the same. I think that's what our suffering requires, this extraordinary act of grace. Now, the follow-up question worth asking is how does God appear? This is what I would want to know as a sufferer. Are we talking about mystical experiences, reassuring dreams, signs from heavens, the still quiet voice? No. In this instance, God will appear out of the whirlwind. In the King James Version, this is called the tempest. It is the true tempest of which Shakespeare speaks. The crashing, swirling winds of a violent storm that have come with the terrifying crack of thunder and the breathtaking awe of lightning streaking across the sky. It is primordial and mysterious. It is awe-inspiring and fearful at the same time. If you were reading Job closely, you'd know that his children were killed by a great wind from the wilderness that rose up and destroyed the house they were in. Earlier, Job had even feared that if God would appear, Job says in Job 9.17, he would crush me with a whirlwind. Job knows the dangers and the threat. The winds do whirl and howl. They have become that which Job most fears. They have the power to destroy creation. Yet God confronts Job in that which he most fears. He speaks out of the swirling winds that have defined Job's pain. Perhaps this is because it will take a whirlwind for Job to listen. Perhaps it's because only in the whirlwind can Job's healing begin. Let me read to you the opening words of God's speech. This is Job 38, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Okay, so three other interesting notes about the opening of God's speech with Job. First, the name of God we're introduced to here is Yahweh. Did you catch that? 
verse 1, it's going to say, The Lord answered Job. Within the book of Job, Yahweh was only used during the opening narrative of Job 1-2. to Every time Job or the friends spoke and mentioned God, they would speak of El, Eloah, Shaddai, or Elohim, all those generic names for lowercase g, God. Now, however, Job will be encountered by Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, who appeared in the thunder and earthquakes of Sinai to make a covenant with his people, and who summoned Elijah not in fire and earthquake, but in the whisper on Mount Horeb. This is the same covenant God that Job is now confronted with. The second note I'd want to make is that if we're paying attention, Yahweh actually does set the theme of his speech in his opening line when he asks, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Unfortunately, our English rendering can make it difficult to see the connection. But that word for counsel in Hebrew, asa, can be translated as plan or design. Who is this that darkens my plan? Who is this that darkens my design by words without knowledge? The whole world has seemed for Job to have spun off its axis, that it's now filled with chaos and injustice. If the only plan God has for his creation is one of gratuitous suffering, then Job would prefer darkness to light and death over life. However, it is Yahweh who now challenges Job out of the whirlwind. He says that Job has spoken words without knowledge. Job does not, in fact, understand Yahweh's plans and Yahweh's designs. If this were the end of the speech by God, we might assume that God was here to power up, simply shut Job down and rebuke him. Yet, I think something more transformative is happening here. Through the following series of questions, I think what God is saying is that he actually wants to offer Job insight into the plans and designs of creation. This is why God is going to take Job on a tour. He's going to offer Job the very missing knowledge that he needs in his suffering. This is going to lead to my third note. In verse 3, God says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's the ESV translation. But the Hebrew here is yet again more compelling. Quite literally, God is telling Job, Gird up your loins like a great warrior, for I will question you and you make it known to me. So here's where this is all coming together. If Job is to receive the insight into God's designs and plans, the insight into God's counsel, it will require that he prepare himself. In the ancient world, the phrase, gird up your loins, came about because a warrior, in order to prepare for battle, would need to tuck the end of their robe into their belt so that they could run without restriction. As a contemporary person who doesn't often have to gird up my loins, I can have trouble imagining this. But as I was preparing for this text, I stumbled across this image from an ancient Greek codex. This is one of those really old Bibles from the 8th or 9th century. It's located on the island of Patmos in this ancient monastery. I loved it. This codex just happens to have an illustration of this moment, sort of the early church wrestling with what it would mean for Job to prepare himself, to gird up his loins before God. So in this image, Job is robed in a linen garment. 
and the folds are billowing to the right as if you can see the force of God's whirlwind is buffeting Job. Job's head is twisted in the direction that the winds are pushing him as if the wind has caused him to avert his gaze. Job's stance, however, in this illustration is solid. It indicates that he refuses to be swept away by the whirlwind that's billowing. His hands actually grasp the cord of a belt at his waist as he girds up his loins in response to God's invitation. His feet are braced and wide set. His knees are flexed and angled against the wind. This is Job leaning in to the invitation to steady himself for what's ahead, to prepare for what will be required of him. If you think about it, this is the great moment of encounter that Job has longed for and yet also feared. This is what all of us have been seeking in our suffering. And unsurprisingly, it turns out it will require everything of us. So all that preparation to say, this is it. This is the moment. Yahweh has appeared. He's speaking from the whirlwind. He's calling Job to consider the very counsel, the designs of creation. And if Job is going to do so, he must gird up his loins and prepare to respond. So what is it that God will say? Well, if you're reading this whirlwind speech on your own, it might be easy to get lost. However, I'm here with good news. Upon closer inspection, the text actually has a pretty coherent logical flow and design of its own. Through a series of questions, God is going to take Job on a cosmic tour. They're actually going to consider three regions. The first will be the outermost reaches of the cosmos. The second will be the region of what takes place in the skies. And the third will be the region of animals, where God is going to take Job to pairs of his creatures to inspect them more closely. So that's it. Three regions, three stops. Filled with questions of God training, teaching, probing his student Job into the deeper mysteries of himself. I personally like to think of what a filmmaker, maybe a Darren Aronofsky or a Terrence Malick, might do with this sort of cosmic tour. Like each region and each scene slowly rumbles with orchestration and fixed intensity. But here we go. Let's take a look at this tour of creation. We'll begin with the first stop, God taking us up to the cosmos. So go ahead and picture this with me now. The whirlwind has come crashing down on Job. Now it's lifted him up. They're in the very reaches of the universe. Quiet suddenly descends. I'm going to read now from Job 38, verses 4 to 7. This voice whispers, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Molecules here begin to assemble. Stars begin to form. Planets emerge from nothing. Tell me if you have understanding, the voice says. Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon it? Now the scene slowly has galaxies begin to emerge. Shining lights of distant stars gleam in the infinite expanse of a universe we still can't fathom. As our eyes now turn, and the voice continues, On what were its bases sunk? Who laid 
its cornerstone. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I mean, come on. That's just verses 4 to 7, and already I feel this awe of wonder starting to move me. God is showing us something so much grander than just our pain. The infinity of the stars are singing together like a choir stall in a cathedral. The universe is a tabernacle, as we're told in verse 7, that the sons of God are singing a song of joy. God is making us question what sort of universe we find ourselves in. I mean, are we just meaningless specks in a cruel, purposeless void of organic substance stretching out across infinity? Or do we find ourselves mysteriously set in the midst of a breathtaking tabernacle intended to emit the moving songs of joy? That's just one scene in this first region. The tour is going to continue with breathtaking scene after another, now in rapid succession. The following verses, verse 7 to 8, will say, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Isn't that beautiful? The chaos of the sea, which was threatening to overwhelm Job's world, instead is described by God as an infant swaddled by its maker and internal constraints. A little later in verse 12 to 13, the narration continues. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, or caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? I mean, here, the very rising dawn each morning is offering the sign of a maker who sees the wicked and intends to shake them out from the crevices of their darkness. Or what about later in verses 17 to 18? Here's another question God will ask of Job. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Job has often talked in despair of the relief that he thinks his coming death might bring. Yet here the camera shows Job the very gates of death surrounded by deep darkness. Does Job really know what is waiting for him? Have any of us truly comprehended such expanses? So in this first region, what has the tour of the cosmos revealed? Well, if you were a literalistic examiner, the tour has not perhaps informed that much. Some commentators note that if God was just trying to get Job to give a straight answer, all Job would be able to say is, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But if the tour was intending to shift Job's perspective on a creation that previously felt cold, removed, and abandoned, the questions of the whirlwind have begun to craft a cosmos of wonder and constraint, one that is illuminated just as much as it is darkened, yet one that maintains these steady rhythms of order, even as we see those elusive, swirling pressures that will bubble up from the deep. 
God moves now into the second region of the tour, the heavens. And these are going to have six visible occurrences that take place in the sky. See if you can catch them. This is from Job 38, 19-20, where Yahweh is going to ask, Where is the way to the dwelling of the light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern its paths to its home. We can catch here the allusion of God to the very first act of creation, when God separated light from darkness. And God is asking Job, Were you there? When the light and dark were divided? Or next, Yahweh is going to continue. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Job's imaginatively taken from light and darkness being separated to now this great treasury, one in which even the snow and hail are carefully stored by God. They're not strewn carelessly across the sky. Instead, God describes them as being distributed and scattered intentionally across the earth, even for times of trouble and days of battle and war. This is a God who's guiding even the lights and winds, who's distributing to his world according to its need. One of my favorite scenes comes next. This is now verses 25 to 27. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? If the hail and snow are stored ominously for war, can Job also not see that there are actually careful clefts that the Creator has carved, clefts for rain to flow? even rain for a land where no man is. It was common in the ancient world to understand the work of the gods as carving channels for rain, and that through such intensive labor on the gods' behalf, this is why the people needed to work so hard to keep offering sacrifices to those gods. What kind of a god carves channels for rain to flow to where no man dwells? simply to satisfy these wastelands, we're told, so that ground can sprout with grass. I mean, has Job really considered this God? Has Job really paused to note the mercies that are present across all of creation? The questions keep coming. In the next one, verse 28 to 29, God asks, Has the reign of Father... Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frosts of heaven? I mean, God here now is taking on the image of father and mother as he's guiding Job through the sky. God's describing himself as gestating molecules of water as if in God's womb to bring forth the changed nature of dew, ice, and frost. Over and over, The friends have distanced God from Job. Yet who is this maker that rather than removed seems so intimately involved with his creation that he would describe himself as the father of the reigns of heaven? I want to pause here. We've covered quite a bit of ground. Remember the questions of Annie Dillard as she asked, what kind of a world do we live in? 
Is this a world of monsters, or are we the freaks who long for moral order in a world that doesn't care about us? Well, God, it would seem, has a different perspective to offer. Yes, there are deep mysteries and crevices we can't understand. Yes, sometimes the hail does fall and the lightning strikes, and we are left to wonder at a world that seems cruel and chaotic. Yet, if I were to summarize where we've been, the outer reaches of the cosmos, the swirling treasures of the sky, we've begun to see through Yahweh's intimate knowledge and the relentless force of Yahweh's questioning that he does, in fact, care. He is intimately involved. That does not shield us from some of the cruel complexities of the world. That also does not mean that God does not see or care when we fall. Instead, this world is ordered and bounded. Evil and chaos are restrained by the light of each new dawn. So there's one last movement to God's tour of creation. He's going to take Job on a tour of the animal kingdom, intimately observing with Job these six pairs of creatures. I like to think that Annie Dillard may have had the right idea after all. God actually does want to press in close with Job to observe the creatures of his creation. There's something God's creation has to teach us if we would just look with the eyes of God. So first, there's this pairing of the lion and the raven who each feed their young. This is Job 38, 39 to 41. It says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion? and satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Or who provides for the ravens its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? Notice how both animals here are vulnerable. They actually need provision. Yet such provision requires sacrifice of other animals. Therefore, God's provision is going to cause suffering. Yet in their vulnerability, God wants Job to see that he hears them and meets their needs. The next pair is even more intimate and vulnerable when it comes to the creatures under God's care. This is coming now from Job 39, 1-2. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Now God is pictured even more intimately, almost as if God's on his knees as this midwife to his creature's birthing. He's patiently counting the months of gestation. Yet even these young, God is eventually going to release into their own wildness and freedom. This is from verse 4. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to their parents. God's examination of his creatures is slowly building a case. God sees the interconnected vulnerability of his creation, so he cares for it. Yet he also sees its wildness and its freedom, and he invites his creatures to live in this freedom. This theme is going to be expanded again in this third pairing of a wild donkey and a wild ox. This is now Job 39, 5-12. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home, and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him to your labor? 
Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? So here's this pair of a wild donkey and a wild ox. For the donkey, God is pointing out to Job, did you loose the wild donkey's bond? I mean, God has given the wild donkey an arid plain for a home. In fact, this donkey will scorn the tumult of the city, doesn't even hear the shouts of drivers. Instead, this donkey is living this unrestricted life. The pressures of the city don't weigh the wild donkey down. What about the wild ox? God similarly asks, can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? Do you have faith in him to return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? I mean, no, this is a wild ox. It's roaming wild and free out on the plains. I think the point of both is that God is delighting in such creatures before Job precisely because they do not operate under the restrictions of a transactional relationship. I mean, this is counter to everything the friends have said about how God works with the world. It goes against what even Job assumed God should be doing in giving him the transaction of blessing according to his righteousness and punishing the wicked according to their wickedness. But God seems to have a different perspective on his creatures. It's precisely because of their wild freedom that God delights in the wild donkey and the wild ox, even when they offer no benefit to God. God still created them, and he cares for them. This is the world God created, one in which his creatures live with freedom and delight. Now, the next animal pairing always gets me. God is going to point to the ostrich in verse 13 and the war horse in verse 19. In just a second, I want to read you the text about the ostrich. But before I do, it's helpful for this part to know that ostriches are quite stupid creatures. Zoologists will tell you they're just really dumb. This isn't even just a modern observation. In fact, in ancient times, the Israelites knew the stupidity of the ostriches and labeled them as unclean. Job already in Job 30, 29 was complaining that all you get are the screeches of the ostriches. So they're not exactly creatures anyone found use for or enjoyed in ancient times or today. Yet for all their undesirability, God is going to point to the ostrich as a creature of delight. So here's the text, Job 39, 13 to 18, and see if you can catch the delight of God in the ostrich's stupidity. Here's what it says. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her to forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. So track with me what God is saying here. The ostriches are comically stupid. They're waving their wings around proudly, even though the wings are good for nothing. The ostrich cannot fly. The ostrich literally will leave her eggs on the earth, forgetting that they might be trampled. I mean, the ostrich is dumb. She did all this work to birth these eggs. Her whole future depends on them, and yet she just leaves them lying in the dirt. Yet here's the point God is getting at when he points to the ostrich. It's precisely in her stupidity 
that she is free. The last verse says, Yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. It's almost as if God is saying, Job, even this bizarre creature, the ostrich which waves wings proudly that cannot fly and foolishly neglects the very purpose of its existence, even the ostrich contains my unabashed delight as one who has no fear. I realize this is complex, but I think there's a gentle image of comfort here. Even the foolish things of this world can run without fear before God. Would not the wise be known and delighted by this maker? Much of the animal imagery contained thus far is offered to Job about a God who cares for the needs of his creatures, even in their freedom, wildness, and vulnerability. It's possible, though, that Job is not satisfied yet. I mean, there's no mention here of suffering, no mention of the violence and bloodshed that Job has known so intimately. So there's this final grouping of animals that's going to focus on a hawk and a vulture. Here's what it says. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Okay, so the hawk soars far above the sky in a way Job could never understand. And the vulture, or the eagle, similarly makes his nest on high, far out of Job's eyesight. However, it's from on high that the vulture spies out its prey, descends on the blood of the slain. Yet, we're told that the vulture does this for the purpose of feeding its young ones. I mean, this is unexpectedly graphic. It shifts us back to the horrors which Job has so vehemently decried. Yet there's a gentle rebuke here about God's ordering of the world. Even the blood of the slain serves a purpose in feeding the vulture, who in turn feeds its young. Just as God provided for that first pairing of lion and raven who feed off other animals, so God has created a world in which human beings are part of this mysterious chain that sustains even the vulture. In order for Job to understand such things, he's going to have to step back to see the diversity and yet interconnectedness of God's creation. I think Annie Dillard was right to see the world in violence, to get up close and to pay attention to the bloodshed. Suffering is part of the creation we inhabit. Yet God is also inviting Annie Dillard and us to step back and see the world for its broader purpose the interconnectedness, the care, and the order that surrounds us. Some animals, like the lion, are instinctively courageous, while others, like the raven, are naturally timid. Some are undeniably strong, like the ox and the donkey, while others are indisputably weak, like the birth of wild goats or deers. Some can be uncannily wise, while others are unavoidably dumb, like the ostrich, yet they're still waving their wings around, rejoicing all the same. Each animal, though vastly different, are paired together, even as each are dependent on God. God celebrates before Job this world of freedom and beauty that also teems with chaos and rebellion. 
Could Job create such a world, God asks? I mean, the obvious answer is no. Of course Job couldn't. Yet underlying God's question is another. Could Job understand and learn something from seeing a bigger perspective of this world? I think this tour of creation could certainly be described as a whirlwind. A whirlwind of sights and sounds, images and questions. A tour de force of creation by its creator, who at each turn rotates Job's vision across the earth to see the scattered yet interconnected world of mystery and design. Yet there's one last piece of text we need to end on when it comes to the whirlwind. God started this whole thing calling Job to prepare himself to speak. And God is now going to pause to hear what it is that Job has to say. This is Job 41 to 2. It says this, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer him. So it turns out that this was not a false offer when God summoned Job to speak at the beginning of his speech. God wants to listen. He's waiting on Job. So now what is it that Job will say? This is Job 43 to 5. Job says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. To understand Job's answer, we first need to note what he does not say that he could have. If God's tour of creation had meant nothing, Job surely would have pressed now. You've not answered my case. You haven't said anything about my injustice. Yet that's not the case. Something new is shifting in Job. Yet I think it's also important to point out that if Job was totally satisfied by what he'd just seen, he could have said, I praise you and I bless you, God Almighty, for now I see that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yet that, too, is not what Job says. Instead, Job's response is, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So what do we make of this response? On the one hand, I see Job acknowledging here his smallness. Surely this matters for the journey Job has been on. Surely smallness is a natural reaction to the whirling winds of the Creator showing you the furthest reaches of the stars. Yet the insight of smallness has not led to praise, but has led Job to cover his mouth, a posture indicating his commitment to silence. Job is not going to press his case any further, but he has not withdrawn it either. The one who has come face to face with God in the whirlwind now stands small, humbled, but silent before his creator. For some commentators, this silence is a posture that says Job is defeated. It's the first step of Job's contrition preparing him to repent before God. Other commentators, though, have pointed out the resilient bravery of a servant who will not withdraw, but instead holds their ground even in a defiant silence. Job is silent because, though humbled, he has not been answered. His suffering still stands, silently holding ground before God. I think both responses could make sense of the whirlwind. 
On the one hand, when God finally appears in our exhaustion, what else do we have but silence? We are humbled and brought low by the rigorous journey it has taken to get to this point of encounter. Yet on the other hand, has God fully comforted Job yet? Is there not a small dignity here for the sufferer in their silence? That they accept but are not yet satisfied by what God has said. Either way, whether Job is silent out of contrition or his silence is one of defiance, what's even more significant is that God will not accept Job's silence. I love this. I would have assumed that God showed up just to make Job silent. I would have thought that all sufferers should get to this point of acceptance where they finally can cover their mouth and cease to speak. It's certainly what the friends have been pressuring Job to do since the beginning. It's the pressure we feel when people ask, how have you been doing? And we know all they want to hear is, fine, I'm doing fine. Yet is the purpose of God's encounter with Job his silence? Is that why God has shown Job his creation? Is that all God wants from Job or from us? So God, in response, in the very next verse, is going to repeat his beginning summons. Job, gird up your loins like a warrior. I will question you and you make it known to me. God isn't willing to accept silence as the solution to Job's suffering. God wants a servant who's restored from suffering so that they will actually speak. As I've been contemplating this moment in the whirlwind, I keep thinking of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. That story always moved me because the angel sees dawn approaching and decides it's time to end things. When Jacob's hip is touched, it's all over, and Jacob is going to limp the rest of his life because of the encounter. But even when that happens, Jacob refuses to let go because of his desperate need for blessing. Perhaps this is a noble sign of faith in Jacob, or perhaps it's just because he knows there is no other hope. But I love that Jacob doesn't let go of God until God blesses him. I love that Jacob refuses, even in his pain, to give up on his deeper need for God. But here in this moment, It's Job who does go to give up on God. This is Job who, after all his questioning and searching and rage, finally heard God speak, yet still goes to give up in silence. Job, who, after wondering if his evidence would ever be considered, decides now there's nothing left he has to say. Job, who sits still in the ashes, his body marked with scars. It's this Job who says, all I have left is silence. Perhaps we begin to wonder in this moment if we too should just resign to silence. Perhaps if all we've ever had are questions, we begin to wonder if maybe they won't ever have answers. Yet it's precisely here that God refuses to give up on Job. It's almost as if God is rising to the challenge. If Job is ready to give up in silence, then God still has more that he's going to say. It's almost as if God is saying, Oh no, this encounter is not yet over. I refuse, Job, to accept your servants in silence. I do not intend to live, Job, off of your empty praise. 
Instead, God is going to continue wrestling with Job until Job is able to see God clearly. God is going to wrestle with Job until Job is once again ready to speak. I think this is because God knows that his creation needs those like Job who will contend for justice. Those like Job who boldly lament creation's pain. God is not interested in the empty systems of the friends. Instead, what God is after are servants who will speak up. Speak up on behalf of the poor, the lost, the suffering, the injustice all around them. Who will summon God to their case. Who will plead for God to answer them. As with each episode, I want to end with an invitation to return to the Word and encounter God again. We have this incredible study available on our website, and this is the week, the vital week, where we're going to spend time with the text of the whirlwind. I know God wants to speak through this text to you. There's also a practice laid out as an exercise in the study. It's this exercise where in prayer you listen to what it is the whirlwind might have to say to you and to your suffering. I pray that you would spend time in this text, and I pray that you would hear God speak to your suffering. In our next episode, we're going to look at the final interaction between Job and God. This encounter, brilliantly, is not yet over, but we do know one thing for sure. God is waiting for us in the whirlwind, and God wants to hear you speak. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.